right, we are rolling now. Counting us down, three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hey there, welcome back to Missing Out. I'm Tari J. I'm Lex Michael. And if this is your first time listening, what we do here is we introduce each other to different media, whether it be movies, music, television, spoken word, books, experiences, things that have built us up as people, and we hope that in sharing it, it builds you up. We are the retrospective that is introspective. Somebody, Tari J, has taken their love of podcast intros one step too far again. Yeah. Ooh, that was really good. That's probably one of my favorite uh, of your uh, intros or your your vague openings. Ah, I love it. Um, So so this week we are talking about Scream 2, the second in the satirical slasher film series directed by Wes Craven, written by Kevin Williamson, and starring a whole slew of individuals like David Arquette, Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Jamie Kennedy, Lori Metcalf, Jerry O'Connell, Jada Pinkett, Lee Shriver, uh, Courtney Cox's, no, uh, David Arquette's dad, um, also Omar Epps. Who else we got in there? Um, Portia de Rossi's in this movie as well. Uh, That's true. Oh, also, um, Paisy from uh, <laughs> Dawson's Creek before he was Dawson, bro, or I guess before he lived on the creek. I don't know which one was Dawson and which one was not Dawson, but before he was that, Joshua Jackson. Um, my, uh, my question, first and foremost, is uh, how many in a slew? Like you referred to a slew of cast members. How many constitutes a slew? It's definitely more than two, right? Because you wouldn't yes. look at two people standing next to each other and be like, that's a slew of people. So right. what's a slew? Is it like, is it, is it seven or more? Where's the, no. where's the bar? So um, two is a couple, three mm-hmm. is a few, and anything more, that's a slew. Okay, so four up. Yes. Got it. Good to know. I'm glad that we accomplished something already. Like, we just started, and I already feel like our work is done. Good. Good, good, good. I'm glad. Um, so, uh, I brought this in. Uh, it has been a long time since I had seen it. Uh, I think it's also been a long time since uh, Lex Michael has seen it. I thought it would be a great fit for this month's theme, which is Mother May I? A month focusing on uh psychotic mothers and 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 disturbing relationships with moms just in time for mother's day as well we hope you guys had a great mother's day um so this one specifically fits in that category um because of insert spoiler here um but right although uh, very very broadly scream is sort of you know, the, it's like the mommy issues horror series. I mean, I guess you could argue to some extent uh, the Friday the 13th movies are that as well. Like Jason has a very specific and very intense relationship with his mother as well. Um, you know, Psycho, which we talked about last week, kind of birthed a franchise that's predicated on a really messed up mommy relationship. But yeah, uh, Scream 
more so than most series across all of its films, bake in weird, dark mommy stuff directly into uh, the explicit plot of the thing. And yes, as you said, no more so perhaps than uh, in this movie. But I want to know, because this was your pick, uh, I want to know why you gravitated towards this one. And I want to know, do you have much of a history with these movies? Because for me, um, and I can talk about this in a little bit, uh, I'm glad that you picked it because it gave me an opportunity to go back to a series of movies that uh, I'm being reminded as I rewatch them were very formative for me. Um, so I, I want to know, like, do you have any real specific background with these movies? Or like, how did you come to them in the first place? This one in particular. So, um, Scream for me was actually one of the first like scary series that I actually liked. Um, as, as we've discussed a few times on this show, I grew up as a, a weak baby piss boy who couldn't really watch scary things because, I uh, was too scared of horror stuff, um, but I really enjoyed uh, Scream One. Uh, but I don't. I didn't really have a lot of memories of it. I just remembered that I liked it, and then I remember specifically going out of my, my way to try to see Scream Two. Um, this came out when I was probably about ten, maybe eleven. Um, and I snuck in to see it uh, because I really wanted to see it, but I was under 17 and I was not accompanied by an adult. Um, and so I told them I was going to go see something else. And then I snuck into the, th- the theater to see Scream 2 and I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I, I don't even think I really understood that it was a satire because you could watch this as a, uh, a straight up horror movie and still have a lot of the same effects and i think that that is what i came into it as but also as a very big uh like media nerd it's also people speaking my language people being like oh man the movies are so crazy because like these are the rules and i'm like yeah yeah these are totally the rules i get it i've seen movies right um and so that has always been my connection with these. And then as I've gotten older, I have understood the satire and I've I've filled in a lot of the blanks that I didn't understand that they were referencing throughout the movies. So um, even even as I was watching it this time, having seen Psycho last week, I understand from the first one when Billy Loomis shoots... Um, uh, I think it's Jamie Kennedy's character, and he's like, Spoilers. we all go mad sometime. Uh, yes. That is from Psycho. And I was like, ah, I see. I'm putting it together all the different pieces. But I never had that context growing up. I just uh, took the movies at face value. Right. And we talked last week, too, or we referenced very briefly last week that the character's name, Loomis, is a direct reference to Psycho. Right. With uh, Halloween as a stopgap in between. Right. Um, but we we don't count that, you know, it doesn't count. Yes. John Carpenter's Halloween does not count. No, doesn't even does doesn't even exist. It's um, it's, it's iconography. Uh, it's iconic status in the pantheon of film history is defined entirely by it's not counting. Right. right. It's a footnote in the in the history of everything. <laughs> um, but if you want to hear about that footnote. 
we have an episode about. Oh my God, uh, that's right. I believe We've the, talked about that. The first one and the second one. Uh, and then we also have uh, another episode about the third one. Shameless plug. And all three episodes are just two of us like, hey, welcome to Missing Out. I'm Tari J, Lex Michael. We're talking about Halloween. And then it's about three minutes of uh, it, uh, doesn't, 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 doesn't count. All right. Join us next week when we'll be talking about something else. Right. Exactly. Just goes exactly like that. Um but speaking of shameless plugs, why don't we uh, why don't we pitch this? Uh, I guess that's that's my role. I'm supposed to pitch this. Uh, Yo, do you like satire? Do you like celebrity cameos? You like movies about mommy issues and dealing with the fallout of the sins of your mother? Then you'll love Wes Craven's Scream a modern take on the classic slasher that is meta, so meta that there is a movie about the first movie in this movie. And it is a part of the plot of the movie that references the events and even adds information to this movie. Do you like meta movies? Cause this is it. Scream two is all for you. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just picturing uh, wandering around a video store trying to make a selection, and you sort of coming up to me with the with the box, with the like VHS box uh-huh. of Scream Two, and just giving me this pitch while I try as hard as I can to ignore you, <laughs> but you keep just sliding the box into my field of vision while I try and look at other movies. I like <laughs> it. This is good. Yeah. Um. So uh, I feel like, um. You know, we can we can talk a little bit about some of the pre-production. Apparently, this movie was basically pitched at the same time as the original. Like it, it was already greenlit six months into Scream being in theaters, uh, and uh, Williamson knew really where he wanted to take this. and so uh, with the success of the first one, people were super on it, though uh, there were some controversies in that uh, the, the script leaked, uh, leaked once, which caused uh, Williamson to have to rewrite basically the whole thing from scratch just so he could maintain the surprise when it got to the movie theater. Mm-hmm. Um uh, which also changed the way that they uh, shot the film in that own, like no one had access to the last 10 pages until it was time to shoot those pages. Uh, no one knew who the killers were. And uh, basically people would only get, they also changed the way that they printed the, the scripts. So they printed them on gray pieces of paper so that if you tried to photocopy it, it wouldn't show up, which is genius. Right. Um, so more recently, I want to say in like 2017, Kevin Williamson said, well, actually it wasn't the real script that leaked. We created a bunch of dummy scripts as decoys so that nobody could torpedo our shit, except the, the narrative that I had been hearing for years and years and years was that they did ultimately have to make some somewhat significant story changes, um, as a result of some of these leaks. And it's interesting. This movie came out in 1997 and so we really were in the sort of first era and very early in that era of 
somebody being able to get a hold of a script and leak it onto the internet so that just about anybody could see it. Um, yeah. That hadn't really been a thing anybody had to consider prior to right around that time. Um, and it's interesting to look at how the world was changing and how the media landscape was changing when, especially when that first screen movie happened, because that was, you know, the year before 96. And it's also, it's wild that they were able to get this thing out into theaters pretty much one year exactly from the release of the first movie. But uh, media's relationship with itself was sort of changing in that, like, think about uh, two years before the first movie, 1994, uh, Clerks comes out and that. Uh, scene where they have the even if you haven't seen clerks a lot of people are aware of the the death star contractors conversation um and that was sort of a really big novel thing that you had these uh ostensibly grown characters talking about pop culture like like they're us like it's you and your friends talking about you know nerd stuff uh, uh over lunch or something like that um and then scream is sort of that but you know, it's it's baked it's so baked into the narrative of the movie and they're able to tell you this meta story because they are able to, in their piece of media, comment on essentially all other existing media. Like you said, it sort of feels like the movies are speaking our language. And so, like, I saw this uh, for the first time along with the, the first movie. I think I was 12 or younger and I was visiting my uncle. Um, he lived in Virginia, pretty close to D.C., and he let me like took me to the video store and let me rent these because I, I don't know, I'd heard about them. Maybe it was around when the third one was coming out and I double featured the two of them. And it was like uh, getting getting uh, the first hit of something really, really powerful. And these movies were essentially like I'd seen horror before, but these movies were essentially a gateway drug for me. And it's mm -hmm. sort of like I feel like they sort of kicked off my fixation a on, yes, the horror genre and the slasher subgenre in particular, but also with the idea of media that comments on itself. And I think one of the most interesting and sort of brilliant things about Scream 2, which they then run with for the rest of the series, is this idea that, uh, okay, so the killers, the people committing violence are in one way or another sort of inspired by media. But then the media that exists in the universe of these movies is then inspired by the real events that take place in that world. And so you have a really interesting relationship between media violence and real life violence, which they sort of comment on directly pretty early in Scream 2. Right. And so the movies are, are able to, A, have a dialogue, like a, a reasonably, like surprisingly, uh, now watching it uh, as an older person, surprisingly nuanced uh, and intelligent dialogue about the relationship between media violence and real life violence but you're also able to build a meta story that keeps everything really sort of uh if not comical then certainly uh whimsical while all of this really terrible shit is happening to all of these very nice uh, very nice people but it definitely flipped a switch in my brain probably a couple different switches in my brain that hadn't really ever been flipped before and and now coming back to them and like I, I, you picking this movie i used it as my excuse to go back and watch all four of them again i've only gotten up through uh through this one so far watching it again i was really sort of blown away by this movie i had not forgotten anything that happened in it but this is it has some some you know arguable flaws and imperfections but i think this is a really really strong or sequel like so much more effective even than i 
remembered. And I, I sat there trying to rack my brain about like, there have been great horror sequels, but I'm trying to think about like the, you know, the second in a series, an immediate sequel to a first movie that was very successful, very uh, cherished and embraced. How many of them uh, are this good? And I'm trying to think of what, like I, Bride of Frankenstein. That's the only one I can really think of off the top of my head. So if I'm making that comparison, I feel like that's high praise. And I don't know if it worked this well for you watching it this time, but like I was sort of floored by how well this one worked for me personally. Yeah, I agree. I think that like I am bringing in my modern sensibilities, which I think in a way were also kind of inspired by media like this things that comment on itself as it's going and and i'm still into stuff like that like you and i last week uh not on the show we're talking about how i'm getting back into community and that also shares this aspect of using a genre to comment on the genre that it's in um and so uh i really uh also was impressed by uh how tight the storytelling was especially because it gives you so many clues as you're watching for a second time uh, that it gives it so much rewatch value. Um, and I feel like I can't talk much more about it without going into spoilers. So I think this is a good time to drop down that sweet, sweet spoiler wall uh, and remind you as you're reaching towards your computer or your car dial or, uh, I don't know, your old-timey Alexa radio. Um, you know, like it has an old-timey radio case, but it's still just an Alexa. Um, that you can go on to iTunes, you can leave us a rating, a review. We read the five-star reviews here on the show. So, if you feel so inclined to do so, uh, please... It really helps us get to the top of the charts, helps other people find us. As you know, the most potent form of marketing is word of mouth. So use your fingers to become your mouthpiece while leaving a rating and review. Um, Nailed it. Thank you. Uh, I think that I've given you enough time to uh, tune out if you don't want to hear anything else spoilery about Scream 2. Uh, also, if you would like to check it out. It's available in so many places. You can catch it on Amazon. It's on uh, Showtime. They're like mobile thing. It's on Hulu through Showtime. Uh, uh, it's on iTunes. You can also find the DVD in places. So it's readily available if you want to check it out. And we'll be talking about it <laughs> uh, right after this break. All right. We are back. And I think you know what time it is. It's time for Lex Michael to bust a recap. Check it out. Here's here's what happens in this movie. All right. So a uh, couple of years ago, Sydney Prescott found out that her mother had been murdered by Jughead's dad and Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. And after she put a stop to their latest reign of terror, uh, she decided she wants to put that all behind her and get on with her life. So she goes off to college. However, uh, a wrinkle is is added to her plan to put this all in her past because uh, intrepid reporter Courtney Cox has written a book based on the experiences that they all lived through in that first movie, and they have adapted it into a major motion picture uh, called Stab. 
Now, when this movie opens, we're at a screening for this movie. Everybody's super hyped because they're like, it's fake, but it's also real violence and stuff. And they're basically having a rowdy screening, which is sort of wild. Like they they all like the fandom is already big enough uh, for this movie that hasn't come out yet, that everybody gets a costume and a fake knife and they're all super, super jazzed about it Uh, at this movie screening. Uh, Omar Epps goes into a bathroom and is uh, stabbed in the head through a stall uh, and Jada Pinkett uh, mistakes the murderer for Omar Epps at first until she gets stabbed a whole bunch and it's horrifying because the whole audience thinks it's a publicity stunt and they watch her get stabbed and she dies in front of them and it's really upsetting and then we go and join Sydney at college where she's rooming with her best friend Hallie and they see that this murder has taken place uh, it's their fellow students that have been killed and so Sydney's all like uh oh more murders and uh we go to a film class where we also catch up with randy who also survived that first movie and we meet uh, mickey who's timothy oliphant and the whole class has a, a debate about sequels and about uh violence both uh, real life violence and media violence and the relationship between the two uh gail shows up on campus being like i'm here to report stuff uh uh, Dewey, who's David Arquette, comes back from the first movie. He's got a limp now because he was injured, but he's like, there are murders happening, and I'm I'm the sweet, lovable cop guy, so I, I gotta be here because everybody would be real upset if I wasn't in the sequel. He's super mad at Courtney Cox because she wrote not very nice things about him in the book. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, yeah, so uh, Gail ambushes Sidney uh, for an impromptu interview with Cotton Weary, the man that she falsely accused of murdering her mother. Uh, of course, he was exonerated when the real killers were revealed uh, and really wants his name cleared. Uh, but Sydney was not warned of this interview. It's a very rude thing for Gail to do. Uh, now, there is a sorority party that night that Sydney is dragged to. And while the sorority party is going on, uh, Sarah Michelle Geller is stabbed and thrown off a balcony. And then Sydney is attacked at the frat house and Derek, her boyfriend played by Jerry O'Connell rushes in to try and save the day uh, and is slashed and the killer disappears. So the next day, uh, Gail and Dewey and uh, David Arquette's dad all have a conversation (laughs) about how it really looks like the killer is trying to recreate what happened in Woodsboro down to the names of the victims being uh, similar. And then they all agree to forget about that and never talk about it again uh, sydney <laughs> sydney tells derek that derek should probably stay away from her for his own good but instead uh he sings her a partridge family song in the cafeteria gives her his greek letters it's very nice uh later he is abducted and uh you know quote unquote tortured by his frat brothers in the theater uh dewey and randy have a conversation about uh sequels and the potential suspects while looking at movie clips from uh from stab the movie based on their lives uh then the killer calls randy and dewey and gail and taunts them before pulling poor randy into a news van and uh killing him at a certain point uh pretty shortly after that joel gail's new cameraman is like fuck this i'm leaving making him the smartest character uh, probably in all of these movies maybe in any slasher movie ever made he's like you know what this sucks i'm leaving Uh, Joel lives. Spoilers, because he is smart. Be like Joel. So Gail and Dewey get the idea to look at Gail's B-roll, thinking the killer is going to be at every crime scene, potentially. But while they are uh, there, they start smooching, which then gets interrupted by the killer arriving, chasing them all around. You get this wild uh, slasher set piece with Gail trying to escape through all this the the sound booth and stuff like that. Uh, Dewey's attacked, possibly dead. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, Let's see, Sydney's been uh, rehearsing for a play. Uh, 
where she plays Cassandra and is terrified of rehearsals because plays are very stressful. Um, <laughs> Gail, Gail bumps into uh, Cotton, who's got blood on his hands, who says he found Dewey. He's not the killer, but she assumes, uh, understandably, that he is. She rushes outside where she finds uh, another intrepid reporter by the name of Debbie Salt, who's been kind of hounding her throughout this narrative at the payphone. Uh, and she yells that the killer is Cotton Weary. Uh, Sydney is being driven off, uh, like with her, she's got some bodyguards now, some agents that have been posted on her. She's going to be taken to protective custody, uh, with her best friend, but then Ghostface shows up, crashes the car, kills the agents. And the, the two girls have to escape through the front, but then Hallie gets killed anyway. And, uh, Sydney runs to the theater, uh, because plays are very stressful. And she's like, maybe I'll uh, Ghostface will have stage fright and I'll stress him out and kick him in the head. And uh, she finds Derek, who's been uh, tied to a star in the theater for a long ass time. Uh, and then the killer arrives, reveals himself to be uh, Mickey, Timothy Oliphant, whose motivation is essentially, uh, one, he just sort of likes to kill people. But two, loves the idea of a big, uh, widely publicized trial. Uh, super obsessed with that idea. And then uh, shoots and kills poor Derek after messing with Sydney's trust issues, which is very mean and very jarring and very upsetting. And then reveals that his partner is actually uh, Debbie Salt, but not Debbie Salt, actually Mrs. Loomis, the mother of Jughead's dad from the first movie, whose motivation uh, is, as she puts it, not as 90s as Mickey. She just wants revenge for Sydney killing her son. She shoots Mickey. Mickey accidentally shoots Gail. Then after a big confrontation, uh, Cotton shows up and saves the day after Sidney agrees to give him a Diane Sawyer interview, shoots and kills Mrs. Loomis. Then uh, Gail is alive. And then they both have to pump Mickey full of more bullets because Mickey is not dead yet. And then Sidney does some cold shit and shoots uh, Mrs. Loomis right in the head just in case. And then they all basically get to go home. Dewey is alive uh, because he got stabbed where he had already been stabbed, which is wild. Uh, and Cotton gets some interviews. He gets his good press. And Sydney gets to sort of wander off wondering why her life sucks so much. Uh, <laughs> credits. That's good. That was great. I feel... that was pretty. That was pretty detailed. I took I took some notes. Nice. I can tell. I, th I think uh, you covered it really well. I think everyone who hasn't seen it in a while will be like, damn, it's like I was just watching it right now. Um, and, and you also reminded me of a few just like small things. But uh, the first thing I really want to talk about is uh, you had mentioned Jada Pinkett's death. Um, yeah. So apparently she had approached Wes Craven and was like, hey, I want my death to be the most horrible thing that has happened in, in cinema. Like I want it to uh, go down in the hall of fame of horrible deaths. Um, and so Wes Craven obliged. Um, I will say that because I was such a big Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett, just Jada Pinkett at that time. Now Jada Pinkett Smith fan. Um, because as we've established on the show, I grew up mostly just watching a bunch of black media. Um, right. And so a lot of that featured and we've done on the show an Omar Epps movie. We've done on the show a Jada Pinkett movie. And I was like, I've cried in both of these movies. Um, so to see them die again was really uh, heartbreaking for me, especially because, you know, uh, it sucks. It, it sucks so bad. It was such a bummer. 
Um, so it was it's... that was my one big gripe with this movie going into it was watching two of my favorite actors uh, die immediately. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're able to, without replicating the exact approach, they're able to, again, uh, we've already spoiled the ending of the first movie, so another spoiler for the first movie is that opening, which is now pretty famous, people already know, um, with Drew Barrymore, which and Drew Barrymore was a sort of a big get for them on that first movie, um, willing to come on and set people up, like, give them this false sense of security, because, like, it's Drew Barrymore, it's America's Sweetheart and stuff, and then she gets stabbed and, and gutted and hung from a tree. Um, so they were able to do something that I think is is equally shocking without without replicating the same approach. But also, um, I think that already, like right in this opening, um, both explicitly and implicitly, the movie is already sort of dialoguing with itself and with us, the audience, about kind of what we were talking about before, the relationship between media violence and real life violence you know like they're talking about um you know jada pinkett goes to get uh like popcorn and soda i think and at one point here's uh two girls who are also at the concession stand talking about like yo this movie's so crazy whatever and, and uh one of the girls is like no but like this is real this really happened to a bunch of kids in california yeah so it's a true story and in the universe like we we watched the first movie we know that this really happened to these people but then you go back into that theater and everybody is just like uh, whooping and hooting and hollering and pretend stabbing each other and stuff like celebrating this fictional piece of media yes but that is based on the awful brutal deaths of actual people right um and then when Ghostface, uh, and we can presume like i don't know if you tried to do this i tried to uh i watched in preparation for uh this podcast i watched it twice and the second time i tried to track which of the two killers was probably committing which murders. And my guess, just because of how he lays out his motivations at the end of the movie, this is probably Mickey at the movie theater killing both of them because he's super into selling the idea that the movies made him violent and stuff right. like that. Um, so murders Omar Epps in the bathroom, but then poses as him and stabs uh, Maureen, Jada Pinkett's character, to death in the movie theater in front of everybody. And it takes everybody far too much time to to figure out what's actually happening. Right. That this is actual. This is actual violence. It's like the the. Uh, there's this awesome like Timothy Oliphant has this great line in uh, his first scene when they're in the film class. Um, talks about uh, life imitating art, imitating life, and that's sort of what these movies, especially two and three, sort of become because you've got their life, which is the events of the first movie. And then a piece of art that was made to imitate their life. And then people start to celebrate that piece of art, which then, like by his thesis, creates more real life violence. You have life imitating art, imitating life. And people are so enamored with the, the art, with the, you know, quote unquote, uh, fictional violence, or at least real violence uh, through that prism, mm -hmm. that they can't spot the real thing when it's right in front of them until it's too late. And so you have Jada Pinkett trying to escape from this person who's trying to murder her while everybody's cheering essentially. Right. And it's, it's so goddamn disturbing. <laughs> yeah. It's real dark. Um, Cause you have to also have to imagine it from Maureen's perspective in that the last thing that 
you see before you die is a bunch of people being like, yeah, stab this bitch, um, which is uh, really shitty. Um, yeah. <laughs> a slight pivot from that is as as this is happening, they we get the reenactment in the in movie reenactment of the first scene of Scream. Yes, with um, Graham. yes. Uh, which I think was a great uh, casting to be the uh, the uh, Drew Barrymore character. But also there's yeah. this moment where she, like it starts with her going to take a shower. Then she gets the phone call and then she walks downstairs and she's also making popcorn. Um, <laughs> and like in the, I think I believe in the, in the original movie, um, she was just making popcorn because she was getting ready to watch a movie. But like it's it's also kind of commenting on how um, a lot of movies, scary movies in particular, try to use that like the the use of boobs in the sex. And they're like, we got our R rating. So let's throw some boobs and butts in there. Um, and so it, it's like this weird <laughs> additional part that's added to the story for like not shock value, but for, for extra male boners um, that I, I like as its own little, like tiny bit of commentary. But I also was like, bitch, you can't go take a shower after you put popcorn on. If the killer <laughs> didn't get you, the fire would have. Uh, uh, I, I like, um, I, I like pretty much everything about the handling of stab in, in this movie. And of course, uh, stab becomes a very, very big, uh, significant part of the plot of the third movie as well but like just this sequence at the beginning if i'm not mistaken um i i want to say robert rodriguez directed the the stab footage like the movie within a movie stab stuff you are correct um i like that uh the shower she goes to take the shower and i don't know if you caught the the psycho shot of the shower like the water kind of like coming on yeah from the from the spout and stuff i thought that was fun but also Now's as good a time as any to shout out uh, the other little bits of stab we get to see. Like there's a scene where uh, Dewey and uh, Jamie Kennedy, Randy, are having Baskin Robbins, I guess. And on TV, they're talking about stab and they run a clip with uh, Luke Wilson as Billy and uh, Tori Spelling as Sydney. And it's it's really funny for a couple of reasons. Uh, not the least of which is that there's a joke in the first movie about, you know, well, Sydney, who do you see playing you in a movie about your life? And she's like, well, with my luck, I get Tori Spelling. And apparently Tori Spelling thought that was a very funny joke. Um, <laughs> but I am. Yeah, I, I really dig what they what they do here, because the first that first scream was maybe the most meta textual bit of horror, the most sort of uh, meta narrative focused horror movie that had come along at that time. And so I like that they found a way to, to double down on that without sort of breaking the reality of the universe. And also while giving it more to sort of dialogue with itself about. And then in the third one, they sort of quadruple down on it. And I feel like the third one is where I think people's uh, opinions of how successful they were in that start to vary a little bit. But I think in this one, they walk that line really nicely between it feeling like a nice little bit of metatextual whimsy without the without the sort of core narrative starting to buckle under the the fixation on the meta narrative. Right. 
that makes sense. I mean, and we talked about this a little bit when we talked about Wes Craven's New Nightmare, um, which preceded the first movie by two years. Um, right. That Wes Craven really got into a he got into a mood. He was like, "Ooh, metatextual uh, stuff. I'm all over it." And so, like, as you as the movies progress, um, it gets more and more specific about like or i guess it gets wider scoped but more specific in that um the first movie is about horror movies as a genre um then the second movie is about horrors uh effect on people and then you get in the third one um the additional perspective of the people who create that media that influences other people. So it's like this, it's like this camera that's slowly zooming out um, as, as it's moving up. So you could imagine in the first one, someone looking at the camera and then having uh, it zoom out to someone watching stab and then having, have it, having it zoom out to having someone watching the dailies of someone watching stab in that, <laughs> in, in, in that order. Cause that's how, meta the the series goes which like right. i don't think this was the third one was, was originally planned like i think in early drafts it was uh thought that this would be the last one in the series and then they eventually decided to make a third one um which i think right. is a nice progression but um it's interesting to see how they uh keep continuing to grow on the ideas that they established in the first one yeah, uh, and again, like I, I feel like they were able to. I, I like as absurd as it gets. Um, at some of the real weird places that they take this series after this one. Um, I really, I mean, look, I'm a huge fan of these movies. If it's not clear already, I'm a big fan of this series. Actually, the very first DVDs I ever owned was a box set of the first three movies. Like the day I got a DVD player, I got that box set. Nice. Stuff. And so I'm I'm a big fan of the the narrative through line of these like it, and the fact that like not for nothing Sydney Prescott's life is kind of terrible yes. like she's had to grasp with the horrible trauma of what happened to her mother but then discovering her boyfriend was responsible for it and also for the deaths of a bunch of other people she knows trying to move on from that and then like she basically gets she gets John McClane in so far as like she tries to move on with her life. She's in a totally different location. And then all of a sudden the same shit happens to the same person twice. Um, she basically just attracts psychopaths essentially. Yeah. And like, everybody's real mad at her for whatever reason. Like she's just trying to live her life and every, you know, three to five years or so someone shows up and is like, you did something that I perceive as a personal slight. And so I'm going to kill half the people, you know, and it's uh, and probably you if I can. Right. But it's always because of her mom. Like it's not it's never anything that she has done specifically except I guess because she killed Billy Loomis, but that's cuz he tried to kill her. Right. Um, like but that's the closest I think that you could come um and we're, we're without too uh without really spoiling like uh, Scream 3 or Scream 4. Uh, yeah, the second one is the only movie where a character, one of the killers, is motivated by something that, yes, is actually technically Sydney's fault. Even though, as you uh, just pointed out, uh, she sort of 
sort of had to to kill that guy, right? Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. I mean, you know, kill or be killed, baby. And, uh, you know, Billy Dunn got killed. He got he got murked, baby. Also, not for nothing, you'd think she would be equally mad at Gail because in that first movie, uh, like, yes, Sydney, Sydney administers the coup de grace, but Gail is the one who sort of shoots Billy and incapacitates him. Right. Um, although, although Mrs. Loomis wasn't there, she's probably basing what she knows about uh, the details on whatever Gail wrote in that book so maybe gail wrote like and then sydney pulled out a she like grand theft auto a chain gun out of nowhere and just shredded that bitch and that's what's <laughs> in the book <laughs> right and so like and so she's you know mrs loomis is flipping through it and she's like uh uh what is it brando and the godfather she's just like look what they did look how they massacred my boy and then goes to the internet and is like i'm gonna hire timothy all and she does that's the backstory right. that's if i was going to do like a tie-in comic like that came out a month before theatrical release that'd be it and everybody would be like this is why they didn't let you write the movie uh <laughs> um but so speaking of timothy oliphant i uh i really liked his perform like especially knowing that he was the killer this time around uh seeing how he manipulated everyone and 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 seeing how he kept throwing uh suspicions in all different directions like every time he's on screen uh after the his first introduction he's kind of like well maybe it's this person oh <laughs> you know oh man i wouldn't be surprised if it was uh randy you know randy man he's he's crazy he loves all this shit uh and it, and it's it's on first viewing you're like oh man he's just doing the doing film theory the way that he did in the in the first thing and and then also i guess anytime you see him otherwise he's talking about how sequels can be better which is another reason why he is motivated is to create a better sequel than the original uh which i thought was a nice little mm, good uh what do they call that just a little bit of frosting on the cake uh (laughs) but also i like how his motivation is very much uh related to real life events in that this came out in 97 and uh so shortly before that was the uh oj trial which took place i believe in 1995 um and that was one of the biggest things on television that uh, essentially took over news cycles and became one of the most sensationalized trials uh, to date. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I like that that piece, it wasn't just his like view of, oh man, uh, serial killers are cool, but it's like, no, like if you want to become famous doing the thing that you love to do which is murder it's all about getting caught and getting that trial um and i feel like that idea since then has really proliferated through a lot of different uh like serial killer media where people are like oh yeah "Yeah, man you gotta uh it's all about getting caught so you can get that notoriety it's not about doing the murders um and then you have murder hipsters who are like nah man it's about the murders. <laughs> Murder hipster. Yeah. <laughs> like like death purists and stuff. Yeah, totally. 
Um, but but you're right. Like his fixation is essentially, and it's it's the media, right? He's going to blame the media, but then sort of become a, a media fixture is his plan. It's sort of like his life imitating art, imitating life. He's going to hang on. He's going to become a sort of media narrative, like a, a an infamous sort of celebrity. So that's life. But it's the the news cycle in that through that prism is sort of like the art. So it's art imitating life, but he was imitating art that was imitating life. It's, it's a per, it's an Ouroboros and everybody is cross-eyed and has a headache. Right. Um, but I love that as, as motivation for this character. And also, uh, I don't know about you. This was the first time I think I had ever seen Timothy Oliphant. I actually, I think this was maybe his first, movie or at least first movie with a role uh, of this significance um and everything he does in this movie i think is fantastic especially towards the end when he unmasks and he's given his whole spiel where he lays out his motivation and what his plan is he just goes so like by comparison he goes not totally over the top but he's he's crazy like he switches into that mode and it's so very fun to watch he's got some line deliveries in that scene that you know i hadn't seen this movie in years and yet i think about with some regularity Mm -hmm. just his his delivery of his entire speech you know like every every, when he's you know gesticulating with the gun and he's like you know the christian coalition will pay my legal fees it's airtight sid like his whole every single thing he does uh in that whole back sequence i think is um is really really great oh yeah i mean it's established that he was chosen because he gets such a kick out of this and so like and there's a a little piece that um just a little breadcrumb that they lay that he's always carrying around this camcorder uh and then you get the kind of voyeuristic voyeuristic uh footage when we're in that uh that screening room with gail and dewey and you start and it's like one of the big clues that he is the person doing the murders. And so like, uh, and also like you had mentioned him being uh, using, using Sid's uh, trust issues against her. That moment, I think it to me is one of my favorite Mickey moments where he's like, what is boyfriend killer, killer, boyfriend, boyfriend, killer. Um, This was my first and probably my last Timothy Oliphant thing that I've seen. Like, I know he's in justified and people love him in that. Yeah. Um, and Deadwood also. Yeah. So uh, I've probably seen him cameo and stuff. Like, I think he makes an appearance in uh, in an episode of The Good Place. But uh, that's that's it. But he okay. uh, he kills it. Um, and also, I like that you had mentioned in, in the recap about how they dropped this idea of what the killer's motivation was having to do with the names. And I think that it was, it's a really smart, another smart breadcrumb in that the, the reason why it's so inconsistent is because they had two separate motivations. And so him doing the theatrics um, was specifically going after basically like random, not random, but like unrelated people. Whereas uh, Mrs. Loomis was only going after the people related to the the first events, and so she went after Sid. She killed Randy, um, and she tried to kill Dewey and and uh, and Gail. 
And right, pr- presumably that's got to be that's got to be her in the the at the film school in the sound booth area, right? Because at that point, presumably Mickey would have to be uh, attacking the car because right. we know that was him because he's got the like gash on his head. Yeah. Um, when he unmasks. So presumably, yeah, that's gotta be Mrs. Loomis stalking them. And by the way, since you mentioned it, um, I, for my money, that is one of the all time great slasher set pieces, everything at that film school, um, from basically from the two of them watching the footage yeah. through Dewey getting attacked. Um, that whole sequence is spectacularly staged. And I mean, it doesn't probably doesn't need to be said again, but just, for for the sake of uh, having said it, obviously Wes Craven was one of the very best to ever do it. Right. Um, like like obviously Kevin Williamson gave him very great material to work with, but the staging and execution of some of these sequences is stunning. I mean, there's that, and then pretty much right after that, we get the escape from the police car. Yeah. Which is one of the most fucking nerve wracking things that you're gonna see in a horror movie. Oh yeah. And then. Pretty much right after that, the big climax at the theater, which I think is also one of the best fucking sequences you're going to see in a slasher movie. Like this, dude, this movie rips. Oh, yeah. I uh, I wrote as one of my notes that the car escape scene is a, just a masterclass in suspense. It's it's so cheaply made in, in that, like, it had to be so inexpensive to just create that sequence. But, like, it is the most suspenseful thing that I, I I think that I've seen in any type of slasher because it also like humanizes the killer, but you also have so many variables in any given moment that you never know what's going to happen. Um, so that piece I think was amazing. Also, uh, you, you talk about the inset piece on that theatrical stage. And uh, I mean, one, the way that it is executed where she goes behind the uh, behind the set and is using that as her weapon um, mm-hmm. also has a really nice theming aspect in that we get this scene earlier with her uh, theater teacher and he's talking to her about how she's able to use the theater to process her uh, her trauma and her pain and she's able to really kind of... Uh, siphon that pain into her performance and then later in the movie you get her literally using the theater to combat Mm -hmm. this uh this uh entity that is chasing her and i thought that was a really amazing just like chef's kiss amazing bit of theming and uh set work yes agreed completely and also since we're talking about that whole sequence i mean we need to talk about Laurie Metcalf, right? Because, yes. okay, so Laurie Metcalf at this point, she plays Debbie Salt, a.k.a. Mrs. Loomis. Um, she was, ju- at this point, just coming off nine years of playing Jackie on Roseanne, um, which, by the way, like, Roseanne is one of my favorite sitcoms uh, ever made because they they made the very brilliant decision at the very beginning of that show to uh, buttress Roseanne, who had not really ever acted before with two really incredible actors and it's John Goodman and Laurie Metcalf who are so fucking good that you can actually get away with doing Roseanne without Roseanne because of how good those two are. Yeah. Um, But she just fucking goes for it in this movie and it never feels like Laurie Metcalf is one of my very favorite 
factors. I think anytime she's in something, even if the rest of the project does not rise to her level, she's going to make the thing worth watching. And her performance, much like a lot of the choices Timothy Oliphant is making um, in the third act of this movie, is really big. And some of her choices are arguably very over the top. And yet she feels so grounded. She feels so real. It feels genuinely honest. Um, And I feel like that's a really difficult line to walk, especially with a character who could be total cartoon malevolence. Right. Um, I think she just does this absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal job. And um, I also think in a story that is very much about uh, sort of in a meta sense, media, our relationship to media and where violence figures in, uh, I think it's really appropriate that she chose to disguise herself as a member of the press Mm -hmm. because yes it's a way to get close to every murder scene but also it's she's literally her job is literally to look at the violence and comment on it you know what i mean to write about it to take the life and create you know it's journalism so it's nonfiction, but to create art right like a great piece of journalism great piece of writing is still art right so she's essentially creating that art from life and using that position to get in there and kill more people uh, to create more. It's not life, it's death, but to create more uh, end, end of life and then presumably uh, or at least pretend to write about comment on it. But but you see once that reveal happens, you go back and you look at the rest of the movie and it's it's so brilliant how like you were talking about Mickey just casually saying things here or there. And it's like, oh, you're. You're just sort of fucking with them. You're basically telling on yourself, knowing that they're not going to be able to put this together. Oh, yeah. Um, and and Debbie Salt, Mrs. Loomis, is doing the same, is even almost more egregious, uh, doing the same thing. Uh, basically getting up in Gail's face and being like, so what do you think about this? So what do you think about this? Isn't this weird and shit like that? Oh, yeah. Um, I love that moment when she is throwing, she threw like a crazy theory out to to gail and then gail walks away and then she stands there in front of the rest of the press and is and is like well i mean it only makes sense that maybe this person did this for these reasons write that down just uh write those things down right like she's like you know if the killer's trying to repeat what happened in woodsboro it's possible the killer is from woodsboro and she looks right at the camera and does a really big wink Uh uh-huh um yes and I also love that moment when she's pleading with uh, Cotton and she's trying to appeal to his vanity um, where she's like, just let me kill her. If you let me kill her, you'll get you'll you'll get all the, the interviews. Your life will be famous. You won't be second fiddle, like really t- knowing exactly how to play that dude. Um, yes. Because- um, and also, so so since you brought him up, like I want to talk about the character of Cotton as well who like they brought Liev Schreiber in clearly uh, on the first movie for one day of shooting so that you could see him on a TV which I actually I think that's really sort of wonderful that he for all intents and purposes doesn't have a role in that first movie you just see his face but they cast Liev Schreiber because it's like we we know we want to tell more of this story and we want to do more with you and Liev Schreiber's a, a tremendous actor but uh what is how how do you feel about the character of Cotton because I think it's very easy in this movie to make uh to make an argument for him and it's just as easy to sort of tear that argument down 
Um, I, uh, I appreciate Cotton's presence in the story. I think he, as a person, like, I get that he was wronged. Um, but I also feel like he is being very much of an opportunist. Like, he didn't, he didn't save Sydney out of the kindness of his heart. He saved her because she promised that she'd do a, uh, interview with diane sawyer like he's not a good like he, dude yeah well he immediately says you know like hey you know like after after he saves her and she gets up he's like hey you know that i would never actually hurt you right and it's like well do i know that right um and like i get that he was lured to that town out of in, in for false pretenses like gail was like yeah we're totally gonna fucking we're gonna talk to to sydney it's gonna be 15 minutes it's gonna be so good uh and it turns out that it was just an ambush and it was all a devious plan and he just wanted to like milk it you know and and sydney throws it in his face at one point where he's like she's she literally says to him that you know he's been cleared uh he's gotten on tv he's done a bunch of interviews like they can just let it die there like that that can be the end of it and there doesn't need to be but he's really trying to get his oj fame you know even though oj was famous before he murdered people so like you're not gonna get that oj fame like you gotta just take your 15 minutes invest that money in something else open up a sandwich shop or something Plus, plus, not for nothing, like, even being famous as the guy who didn't murder that one lady is not the most ideal thing to be known for. Right. So, uh, yeah, he should have just, he should have just moved on with his life. He should have just been like, all right, like, I know that some people still view me all weird, but, and then just carry around a newspaper that's like, Cotton didn't do it. And you'd be like, here, here you go this me or just like give it to people be like here i'm i'm, I'm innocent uh and now i'm i'm a, a and also he could have written his own book that's how you got to do it you got to fucking right. write your own book uh and become a new york times bestseller and then retire maybe meet oprah uh yeah but he does i, I i'm glad that uh he, i guess he sort of gets his version of a happy ending in that the press now all wants to talk to him and he's like, here's my card, pay me and stuff. So, so he'll, uh, that, that I'm sure it'll all work out for that crazy kid. Yeah. Also, I assume, uh, for Lee Shriver that, um, the moment that he jumps onto the stage and is crouched over with the gun out in such a comic booky fashion, that that is what got him the role of Sabretooth in the, uh, Wolverine movie. Dude, it's so good, though. Like, that moment is so great. It's like for a second he shows up and he's going to be an action hero. Right. And, and save the day. And he does. Yeah. And I also like, I like as they're circling each other, I really like, um, because he gets to do that, but also the character of Cotton is way out of his element at this point. He doesn't really know what's going on. Mm-hmm. He knows that he... It's probably not going to look good for him if Sydney dies, especially when Gail clearly thinks he's he's just killed Dewey, potentially. Um, but I love that they're circling each other sort of nervously, and he sort of stumbles on the pillar mm-hmm. that fell over. Like, it's not a huge moment. It's a pretty small moment, but I like it a lot because it's just a physical indicator of how, how over his head, uh, in over his head, Cotton is right. at that point. 
Yeah, I thought that's just very well. Again, that whole last act is just fucking gangbusters. Oh, yeah. Everyone's uh, acting at the top of their abilities. It's crazy. Um, do you have any last thoughts before we wrap out? Couple of uh, quick little things. I guess maybe the biggest thing is I was thinking about how uh, Courtney Cox as Gale is, in a way, uh, in these first two movies, sort of the Han Solo of Scream. In that, in that first movie, she is the character who's like the mercenary, totally out for herself, just wants her money and her glory and stuff, doesn't really care to intervene on anyone else's behalf and stuff. And, and it's, it sort of holds to that throughout almost the entire narrative and then swoops in uh, for the big save at the end. Uh, biggest difference between her and Han Solo is that she decides to be an asshole again at the end of the movie right. and continues to be an asshole for most of the first uh, half of, of this one. But I do think if she is the Han of this universe, then it, it stands to reason that in the second installment, uh, her, her, I guess, I guess Dewey's Leia yeah. in this equation uh, focuses a little bit more on their, their romance. Although it is at the end of the story, uh, Dewey, who is uh, potentially almost fridged uh, in in favor of uh, her getting to sort of stretch her legs and run around and stuff. Right. But I also I like that they <laughs> I like that they unkill Dewey, like the way that they stage that sequence. It's very clear that like this is meant to be Dewey's demise. And then at the very, very like one of the very last things that happen that what one of the very last it's... things that happens in the movie um, is they wheel him out. It's like, oh, we found a living person. Mm -hmm. So lucky for this guy that he's already been stabbed in the back or he might have been stabbed in the back to death. <laughs> and she rides off with him and it's and it's very nice. I also like that Joel, the cameraman, comes back at the very end and is like, I thought we could report the news like in the old days of 48 hours ago. Right. But then when she when she bails out of there, uh, he just picks up the camera and the microphone and starts doing both of their jobs. And I like to think that, you know, by now, Joel is running that entire network. Um, uh, and yes. in the last two... Oh, hold on. Before oh, we what? move on from that. Um, speaking of Joel. So um, the decision to keep his character alive and have him leave was actually Dwayne Martin's, which I thought was great. Um, oh, okay. We had seen enough black people die in this movie. We reached our quota and then some. Um Yes. But also, there was a little thing about the moment he was leaving where his he he's like, I'm getting out of here. And he goes to the to this cab and it's it's in the background. It's so blurry. But the cab driver, uh, it has a neck brace on. <laughs> and I was like, why the <laughs> fuck would you what would you ride with this dude who is either faking an injury or has been in a crash before. I'd have been like, no thanks. Um, but it's such a weird minor detail that you, if you are, I don't know, on your phone or you're not paying attention or you're just paying attention to what's happening in the foreground, um, you blink and you'll miss it. But it's such a weird specific thing. It's like the guy in Harry Potter uh, 3 that was in the Leaky Cauldron who was stirring his tea using uh magic while reading a particle physics book and you're like tell me his story uh that is that character um i just had to uh, mention I like that. it like that's how you know that uh joel is absolutely ready to not be there anymore he's like he ran that equation in his mind and he was like you know what fuck it i'm just gonna let it ride 
I'm just going to it's it's worth the risk to get the fuck off of this campus. <laughs> um, OK, so you had a, a couple more thoughts. Yeah, just two quick, thing, two quick things. Um, so we also have uh, in uh, supporting roles, uh, Rebecca Gayhart and Portia de Rossi as these uh, two sorority girls and talking about lines that for whatever reason, no matter how long it's been since I've seen this movie, just occasionally and with some frequency, in fact, floats across my mind uh, is her delivery of hi. No, I really mean that. Hi. And I wanted to shout it out because I, I think it's bizarre as fuck and wonderful. <laughs> um, and then the last thing was, uh, so obviously uh, Jamie Kennedy's character, Randy, who survived the first movie, uh, is killed off in this one. And of course, like it's it's very much a trope in slasher series with continuity that usually if a character survives, especially if they're a supporting character, if a character survives the first installment and returns for another one, uh, they probably will not make it through. Um, now, of course, the, this series is a big exception in that you've got three characters that basically have, have character shields throughout. Uh, Randy, not so lucky. But there's a scene early in the movie, and it's well known that, that horror movies, um, much to the surprise of some folks, have a weird, almost puritanical sense of morality about them. That's why, like, when Randy is talking about the rules in the first movie, he talks about, you know, you can't drink or do drugs, you can't have sex, because, like, it's all it's this idea of sin, and, and these, these young people get punished for it, essentially, and, and the punishment is usually a big knife or a farming implement of some kind uh, going through their body and killing them. Um, but I'm wondering, uh, in this movie, so there's that scene in the film class where they're talking about sequels mm -hmm. and randy who we've established is the movie expert right he's the he's the geek whose whose entire life is internalizing and regurgitating what he knows about media and they're talking about uh, aliens versus alien and uh pacey says you know the quotes the line says get away from her you bitch and, and they're like haha it's awesome and randy corrects him by saying, I believe the line is, stay away from her, you bitch. This is film class, right? And everybody laughs. But Randy is wrong. Yes. So that's not the line. Pacey was correct. And I'm wondering if that's the moment where, uh, uh, according to the moral barometer of this universe, <laughs> that Randy's fate was sealed. Because not only did he correct him. Like, honestly, it'd be one thing if Randy was, was right. Uh, but... Not only did he correct him incorrectly, but did so in like a really snotty kind of condescending way. Right. And I'm wondering if that's the moment where the god of the Scream universe decided, that's it, you've sealed your fate, my guy. <laughs> I had read that um, uh, Paisy had actually flubbed his line, and so Jamie Kennedy ad-libbed the quote-unquote correction, um, and they decided to keep that. I don't know why. Maybe Joshua Jackson was like, I never wrong. Uh, and like <laughs> left right after. But uh, that's what happened. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so that moment, yes, that moment always, always leaps out at me. And also some real, uh, some hot takes in that film class. But it was very much like a real film class, honestly, when people start throwing opinions around and you just kind of sit there quietly going, what? Well, yes. Uh, film okay. class or twitter or twitter yeah that's true Twi except nobody uh nobody in the film class uh used a slur or compared each other to a nazi so like we hadn't really we hadn't really arrived at twitter yet but yes well, it's sort of like we were only in the first the, day this, right that's that's true they just all went back to school i guess um 
but yeah, the uh, th- so there's that. Yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of Twitter, uh, where can people find you if they want to talk to you some more about Scream, the series, or Scream Two? Uh, if you want to talk to me, if you want to give me your your hot takes about movies, like we're in a late '90s film class, uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at the Lex Michael, and you can find me at Tari J T A U R I J A Y. But most importantly, you can find this podcast at Missing Outcast. That's M I S S I N G O U T C A S T. We're on Twitter. We have an Instagram, but we don't use it. Um, But yeah, follow us. We uh, are going to be tweeting out our weekly schedule uh, in terms of what's coming out for the month. Uh, Next week, we're going to be talking about the 1994 movie Serial Mom, and that's a Lex Michael recommendation. Uh, It's going to be so, so wholesome. It's going to be so wholesome in that people are going to be full of holes you get it anyway um so make sure to follow us to keep tabs on what we're going to be talking about if you want to talk to us about things that we've already talked about if you decide to go back and listen to other episodes and you have thoughts about those you can hit us up on twitter we've already given the handle but if you need it again it's missing outcast m-i-s-s-i-n-g-o-u-t-c-a-s-t but that brings an end to this week's show. So, until next week, this has been the retrospective that's introspective. And now you have a new perspective. Yo, do you like satire? <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I'm sold already. Oh, Here, take man. my money. <laughs> Thanks. Um, uh <laughs> no, I gotta, I gotta get back in the, in the mood. Okay, hold on. <clears throat> <laughs>